morning. It's great to have you back this Sunday. I'd like to start with a question. Um, have you ever felt underappreciated? <laughs> You're laughing. That tells me either it's a dumb question or you have. Have you ever felt undervalued? Where people take advantage of what you give? Where they've just grown accustomed to how you serve and they begin to have this attitude of entitlement? You ever feel disrespected? I was reading a couple articles this week and this one uh, therapist said that she believes the number one issue in marriages today, it isn't finances, it isn't, it isn't sexual, it's a lack of respect for one's spouse. How about this? I read another article, 70% of workers in the U.S. feel disrespected in the workplace. If you've ever felt undervalued, if you've ever felt disrespected, if you've ever felt taken advantage of, then you might have a little bit of an understanding of what's behind God's message in Malachi. Malachi's message, God's message through him, is after all that he's done, he thinks he deserves a little respect. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 begins by telling us that this is an oracle of God. A term oracle, it means it's a heartfelt message. It's something that is weighing heavily on the heart and soul of God. It's something that is just ruminating in his soul that he needs to respond and the first person he responded to was Malachi. And as he shared that burden with Malachi, then it became a burden of Malachi that everywhere he looked, everywhere he saw, he began to understand the heart and need for God. And then God gave his message through Malachi to his people. And he began by saying, I've always loved you. I chose you. I have always loved you. I've provided for you. I have protected you. I powerfully freed you from slavery. I fed you through the, through the desert. I forgave your constant failure. And I gave you success. I loved you through your captivity. And I restored you to the promised land. But then God turns his focus onto his people. He says, after all I've done for you, I think I deserve a little respect. A, a definition of respect that I like, respect, a feeling of deep admiration for someone or something elicited by their abilities, qualities, or achievements. God say, if you know me, if you recognize all that I've done for you, I think I deserve respect. The first group of his people that God turned his attention to were the priests. Man, if anyone should get this, it would be his priests, his spiritual leaders. And again, let me remind you, just in case you start checking out, oh, great, okay, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a priest, I don't need to listen to this, this doesn't apply to me. Let me, let me remind you of what the Apostle Peter wrote to the church. He said, you are a, rose, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He said this, for you once were not a people, now you are. You're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have. Like you're the priests, you're the instruments of God's power. You are that intermediary between God and the brokenness of this world. Look at what the uh, um, Bible in Hebrews says. Hebrews 13, through him then, let us continually offer up, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his names and don't neglect doing good and sharing for such sacrifices God is pleased. Last week we began God's confrontation of his priests, and this week we continue it in Malachi chapter 1. If you're there, Malachi is in the Old Testament. It's the last book in the Old Testament. It's right before the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. Malachi chapter 1, we're going to pick up this oracle, this message of God in verse 11. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, listen to the words of God. He says, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations. Jesus, or God said that twice, that term great, you describe something that is the greatest Something lifted up to the highest position possible. It describes something that is of utmost importance. God looks down the road and says, there's going to be a time where everyone recognizes who I am. That I will be the pinnacle and the top of everyone's life. In New Testament vernacular, there will be a time where every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But then God said, if there's anyone who should recognize that early, if there's anyone who sh that should embody in their life today, it should be his people. And in particular, it's priests. God said, there's gonna be a time where everyone knows who I am, but you ought to already know. But here's the problem, look at verse 12. Their big biblical butt right there, first word. And again, why that's my favorite word? Because it tells us we're changing track. Something that we're expecting isn't going to happen. Just when you think everyone's like, yes, we know you're great, God. We know you're the one. But even though you should know that, even though that should resonate in your life, even though that should transform who you are, but you're profaning it. You're profaning the name of God. Instead of recognizing who I am, you're profaning who I am. That term profane means to pollute, to defile, to undermine, to cut into the very heart of it. God's like, everyone, there's going to come a time where everyone recognizes how great I am, and you of all people should know. But instead, you're cutting me off at the knees. You're undermining my name and my work, my legacy, and my reputation. And then God goes into a series of issues. We're almost expecting the people, right, to say, because that's been their history, well, God, how are we profaning your name? God doesn't even wait for them to ask. Hey, God, how are we doing it? God goes directly into, I'm going to give you the issues. Everyone should recognize my greatness 
You of all people should recognize it. But not only do you not recognize it, you're polluting it, you're undermining it, you're cutting it off at the knees. And here's how, here's the issues. Number one, you have a lack of contentment. Again, God's talking to the priest. Look at what he says. Verse 12, but you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. Hit pause a little bit. To really to understand what's going on there, I need to move you to another book. So put your thumb in Malachi. You're going to flip to the other side of the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Again, one of these days, we're going to have to do a sword drill, right? You remember those in Sunday school? Start having free donut coupons in the cafe for the first person who can get there. All those who use your phones and iPads, that's cheating, doesn't count. (laughs) Deuteronomy 18. (laughs) Deuteronomy 18. Don't worry, I'll let you know ahead of time so you can bring the old-fashioned Bible. Deuteronomy 18, look at verse 1. This is what God says. Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Remember the land that God, when they went into the promised land, God gave every tribe a portion of land as their inheritance, as the people of God. But he says, the tribe of Levi shall have no portion. They don't get any land. They don't get an inheritance. Well, what is God's plan to care for them then? What is God's plan to invest in them? Look what he says. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire in his portion. God's means of caring for the people of Levi was through the offerings and through the sacrifice. Look at verse 2. Then they shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance. There's something special, God says, about this tribe of Levi. Verse 3, now this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, of which they shall give to the priest the shoulder and two cheeks and the stomach. I'd prefer just the shoulder, but (laughs) verse 4, you shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the first shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen him handpicked him, selected him and his sons from all the tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. As God is giving out to everyone a portion in their inheritance of how they're going to, to thrive and be blessed by God, as God's handing everything out, God says, no, 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 Levi, you don't get anything. Instead, you get everything. You get a piece of everybody's stuff. When they come to give an offering to the Lord, that's your sustenance. When they come and make a sacrifice to the Lord, a portion of that belongs to you. And throughout history of God's people, when their faith is high, when their reverence to God is correct, when their heart for the Lord is pure, the temple had more than enough and the priests had more than enough. But when the people's faith was low, when they were distracted, when, for the, when their heart for the Lord was clouded, their offerings were small. Their sacrifices were infrequent. Then the temple suffered, and the priests suffered. And that's what's happening. 
Remember from last week, right? The, the priests were allowing people to bring sickly sacrifices and, and weak offerings, and it was a, a very uh, shallow comparison to what God wanted. And as a result, the, the priests were saying, hey, we're not getting enough. They're saying the table of the Lord is defiled. The table of the Lord, it's worthless. It stinks being a priest. We don't get paid enough. Our portion isn't enough to sustain our homes. We don't have enough. The table of the Lord, getting our portion from God's people. God, you're, you're abusing our role. And look, he says that its food is despised. Our portion, it's rotten, it's sickly. I want to remind you, isn't that what God said about their sacrifices just last week in the previous passage? God's going, his, co his uh, confrontation to the priest, you're allowing people to bring sickly sacrifices. I don't want to eat that. You wouldn't serve that to the governor. You wouldn't serve that for your company. Why are you giving that to me? Now the priests are complaining to God. Hey, God, our portion, it's sickly. It's disease. We're getting rotten bananas. We're not getting the yellow ones. Right? I don't know if your kids are like my kids. If that has just one of those brown spots. Oh, it's, it's too ripe. They're saying, number one, we don't like what you're giving us, God. And my question is, well, whose fault is that? God said, it's your fault, priests. You're the ones. Let's look back. Malachi 1, verse 8. Just a few verses earlier. Look at what God says to them. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? Remember how they were trying to sneak in these fake imitations? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly? God says, listen, your lack of spiritual health, not only is it eroding your soul, but it's eroding your physical livelihood as priests. God continues, first issue is these priests' lack of contentment but also their lack of passion. He continues, verse 13, he says, you also, and God's like, wait, I'm not done. Not only are you not content with what I'm giving you, you're lucky to have what you have. He says this, you also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. You don't respect your job. You think that being a priest of God, it's, it's a bother, it's a burden, and that you're taken advantage of. The term defiled, sorry, that term how tiresome, phrase means to describe something that's weary, hardship, it's unfair. God, we're not only discontent with what you give, we're discontent with our job. This is horrible, serving you like this. And God says, you even disdainfully sniff at it. That phrase, disdainfully sniff, they seethe on the outside. They go through their ministry sighing in agitation and rolling their eyes in discontentment. Oh, I hate this. It's such a burden. 
Can I remind you of how God sees their role as priests? I'll just put on the screen Deuteronomy 8.5. We read it just a little bit ago. Look at what God says. For the Lord your God has chosen him. God chose them. Hand-selected them and his sons, the tribe of Levi, from all the tribes. God doesn't see serving him as some sort of burden, an unfair something that he put on you. This is a privilege to stand and serve in the name of the Lord. Man, what an opportunity it is to serve the Lord. I told you um, before I decided to answer God's call to be a pastor, I struggled with that. I think I would probably in my heart say, oh, how tiresome it would be. I think I disdainfully sniffed at it. Who wants to be a pastor? Low pay, disrespect, long hours. But I didn't feel like God would let me do anything else. So I'm like, fine, I'll do it. Went and talked to my grandpa. I remember having breakfast. He said, do you want to be a pastor? No, I don't want to be a pastor. But God won't let me do anything else, so I might as well. My grandpa sent me back. The last thing the church needs is a grumpy pastor. <laughs> Man, I'm so glad he did that. I wrestled with God for that entire summer. God, if you want me to be a pastor, you have to change my heart. And I want to tell you, within that summer, God changed my heart. And I have loved ministry ever since. For over 25 years, man, I can't imagine anything better than serving you. That's, here's the thing, and I don't understand how pastors and young leaders grumble about how hard a job it is. I don't get it. It's a privilege to be a minister of the gospel. Now let me turn it around to you. See, you're a minister of the gospel too. You may not be a pastor, but maybe you're a husband. Oh, there's burdens of being a husband and how we complain about it. I'm not speaking of any husband in particular. <laughs> Matt's over here elbowing. Yeah, it is. Man, it, it can be a burden. But it's a privilege to serve the Lord as the head of that home. And when I mean head, that's not the authoritative one that puts everything under his thumb. It's the one who's responsible for everything as to the Lord. Man, it's a burden to be a mom. It is a burden. But it's a privilege. Moms and grandmoms, I got to tell you, there is no voice more powerful in this world than the voice of a mother. How often do we complain about the weariness and the burdens of parenthood? instead of the privilege that God has given you to shape the minds, characters, and souls of other human beings. It goes on and on. We complain about being an American and how in our kooky culture and our vote doesn't count. Man, what a privilege it is 
that God has placed you here in Kooky, California to be a reflection of his glory. We complain about our jobs. Man, I feel disrespected at work. My boss doesn't appreciate me. The pay is low. I don't get paid what I deserve. And God says, flip that around. What a blessing it is to be a reflection of the glory of God in the midst of that. Guess my question, where do you need your heart changed regarding your ministry? Maybe it's just in your ministry at church. Man, I know some of you just work hard. At least I get paid. You do it for free. And maybe sometimes it feels like a burden. Maybe it's one of those, what aspect of your life do you need to go to the Lord and say, God, change my heart? Because I think so often we're like those priests. We're discontent with what God gives us without recognizing that some of our struggles is built on our own failures and our own struggles, our own sins. Sometimes we disdainfully sniff and we just roll our eyes at how burdensome our life is without recognizing the privilege that from God's perspective, I placed you in there. I made you that wife. I made you that husband. I gave you that job. I trusted you with those children. This is a privilege to joyfully reflect the glory of God in the midst of it. And God says, man, this is my problem. Everyone at one point is going to recognize my greatness. You of all people should do it. You of all people should respect my role in what I'm doing, but instead you're discontent with what you have and you lack passion for what you do. But God's still not done. In verse thir- uh, the end of verse 12, it says, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Do you think I want that? Remember, God, the purpose of the sacrifice is something without blemish, something that's perfect, the prize of your herd. It's the first fruits of your crop. It's the best of the best is supposed to be given to the Lord. Instead, people bring the worst of the worst instead, hoping that God doesn't notice. He rehashed that from the passage before, but he put something new and he says this, and you also bring what was taken by robbery. You steal from someone else to give it to me. It doesn't even cost you anything. You go and steal it from them so you can offer it to me. By the way, that term robbery, it's like an, it's armed theft. It's not just that you just ran up to some old lady, grabbed her stuff and ran. You took it by force. It was violent crime. You cut it out of her. I mean, you were violently stealing from other people and offering it to the Lord, and God's saying, I don't want that. God says, have you forgotten who I am? God says, you think I want an offering like that? You think I want your worst? You think I want product of your sin given to me? God says, you for- have you forgotten who I am? And have you forgotten who you are? I'm the God of all creation. I spoke everything into existence with just my mere words. 
I sustained you. I rained food from heaven. I made water come from rocks. I divided an entire body of water for you. I protected you. I've saved you. I sacrificed my son for you. Is that how you come to worship? Recognizing my greatness. I thought, what a great question for us today, huh? When we come into church, when we live our lives, do we recognize and remember the greatness of God? When you approach God with your worship, not only on Sunday, but every aspect of your life, do you approach him remembering who he is, what he deserves, and who you are, and what he desires of you? I think it's far too common for God's people to grow too familiar, to begin to get comfortable with what God gives, and maybe even grow a little entitled as if we deserve God's love, instead of remembering that God deserves ours. So what does God want? Oh, by the way, third point, lack of integrity that these priests are giving what's stolen. They're just going through the motions. So what does God want from us then? What does God desire? What's that look like? That's what God goes into next. Next point, here's the expectation. I love... uh, Verse 14, going into chapter 2, is like this come to God moment with his people, with his priests. Verse 14, cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I'm a great king. There's that term again, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is feared among the nations. Chapter 2, verse 1, says, and now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. God says, listen, here's my expectation. Number one, honor God. He says, honor my name. That term honor means to give credit that's due to recognize his splendor, acknowledge his greatness, and respond in kind. If you truly in your life recognize the greatness of God, it will cause some sort of shift in your life. It has to. When you recognize you're an instrument of the God of all creation to be a reflection of his glory, if you are living your life recognizing God deserves your very best in every aspect, it creates a change. God says, honor my life. And and he says, this is a commandment. It's not an option. This isn't honors Christianity and college prep Christianity. Those of you who have kids in high school, right? For the overachievers, you honor God. For the rest of you, man, just do your best. We'll see you in heaven. That's not what God's saying. There's one standard for my people. Honor God. Give me what's due. Give me what I deserve. Give me what my name deserves. 
This is a commandment. It's a directive. It's the law. It's an ordinance. It is the term of our relationship. There is no writing our relationship without giving me honor. And then he says this. He says, and if you do not take it to heart, that phrase, take it to heart, if you don't get it through your thick head, if you don't pull your head out of the sand, Stephen was worried there for a minute. If you don't pull your head out of the sand, if you don't drive this truth down deep into your very soul, because like, listen, you need to take this seriously. You need to honor me and give me what's due, and you need to drive that truth down deep into your soul of your heart. And if you're like me, your response is, or what? Your kids ever do that? Hey, I want you to do this. Okay, well, Dad, just, just as a question, what happens if I don't? What happens if I don't do that? And God knows that exists in our heart, so he doesn't even wait for us to ask. Look at what he says, verse 2 and 3. He says, if you don't take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And look at this, and he says, indeed, I have already cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. I know you. That term curse, mentioned three times, is the opposite of blessed. Term curse, it means to inflict harm, hardship. Because you want to know why life's so hard? Because I'm not behind you lifting you up. I am against you pushing you down. If you don't take this to heart, I will curse it. I will remove the blessing and I will be in opposition to you. And he says, and listen, I know you're not gonna take it to heart. I've already done it. I've already cursed you. I'm already against you. You feel like you're running uphill in the mud against a, a, a gale of a wind? It's because I'm against you. You wonder why life is so hard? I am not for you. I am against you. And look at verse three. My second favorite word, behold, when you see it, you circle it, because that means surprise. Something's coming you don't expect. Look at what he says, verse 3, behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring. I'm not only against you, I'm against your kids and your grandkids. That's something we don't recognize as adults or we forget. Sins of a father cast down generations. My failures, my lack of faithfulness to God and aspects of my life negatively impact my children. You know that. That doesn't mean God can't work within them. But things we recognize, ah, it's just going to impact me. No, it won't. And if, if this generation isn't faithful to God, Man, those issues cascade down generations. God says, behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. And look at what he says. This is not for the faint of heart, mind you, but it gives you a little insight into the depth of emotion that exists in God's heart. I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. 
What's that mean, God? You're going to curse us? What's that mean? I'm going to rub your face in the garbage of your life. And you're going to be taken out with the garbage too. At first, it seems unusually harsh. I mean, the thought of God smearing discarded waste on faces and discarding people out, it's shocking. But take a moment and consider what God's saying. If you're not going to give me what is due me, if you're not going to give the sacrifices, remember the purpose of sacrifice is to recognize my sin and my need for God's deliverance. If you're not going to give me what's due me, then you're going to get what's due you. Do you see that? If you're not going to give me my respect, then you will need to endure your disrespect. If you're not going to recognize my salvation and saving you from my shame, then you are going to have to endure your shame. As God's saying, listen, I'm done carrying this relationship on my own. Give me what's due me, and then I will give you what I've promised you. You don't give me what's due me, then you get what you deserve. If you don't give me what I deserve, then you will get what you deserve. You know, this isn't the only time God made a comment like that. I think this familiarity with God, this, this belief that somehow we settle into being entitled to what God gives us instead of remembering that God is entitled to what he wants from us. It's plagued God's people from the beginning of Scripture to the end of it. In fact, there's a message that God gave to a church named after the city they're in, the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus, it was one of the highlights of their day. They were the light on a hill in their region. If you remember from our study in Acts, the church of Ephesus, it was birthed by the apostle Paul. They witnessed miracles. God did such a work, they transformed the entire economy of the region. And that entire area of Asia was impacted by that one group of people. I mean, the church of Ephesus, when Paul wrote to to the Ephesians, I mean, there wasn't any corrective wording in it. Like, this was a great church, but that's what shocks us when we get to Revelation. We get to Revelation, the beginning of that book. There's seven letters written to seven churches. Let me share with you what happened. See, something happened between the church of Acts of Ephesus. Two generations later, something shifted. Look at what God says. He says, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles and they're not, and you have found them to be false. God says, good for you. You're doing all the right things. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Big biblical butt right there. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. 
You're going through the motions. You're just doing what you think you ought to do. I'm not a part of it any longer. Therefore, remember where you have fallen. Repent. Go back to where you were. Where you respected me, revered me, had me at the center of it. Look at this or else I'm coming to you. I'll remove your lampstand out of its place. Lest you repent. I'm going to remove your franchise opportunity. I'm going to remove your empowerment to be a reflection of the mothership. You're done. You're, show, you're closed down. If you don't get this right, I'm out. And I was reading just this last month. Alarms. More, more churches are closing than opening. There's less Christians in America today than a generation ago. And there's these alarms going off. Hey, there's something wrong with the church. There's something we need to preach the gospel different. We need to add more lights, more smoke. We need to do something to the show to drag attention back to the movement. But here's my question. Why, what if... What if it's the issue isn't with the gospel? What if the issue isn't in how we do church? What if the issue is the church? What if churches need to close? Because they're not giving God what's due. What if that's already begun? I wonder, I'm not a prophet, I'm not Malachi, I'm Brian. I was reading this and I thought, we wanna see God do amazing things in the Chino Valley. We wanna see churches thrive. We wanna see the gospel transform lives and restore marriages and renew homes. I don't think the problem's with God. He spoke everything into existence with his words. He can fix this like that. I don't think the problem's with Tyler and his team. I don't think it's an, a an aspect of needing different lights, different backgrounds, more dramas, less dramas, videos, no videos. What if the issue is here with us? What if the problem in our country and our culture is us? What if the problems in our homes is us? What if the problems in our marriages is us? Here's my question then. Where do you need to honor God in your life? Because I suspect God's getting pretty sick and tired of hearing our same verbiage our same empty promises. If I was God, I'd be getting tired of hearing our complaints without recognizing his goodness. Things getting tired of hearing us whine about our roles and not respecting his power. And I think he's getting pretty sick and tired of us continuing to say God's got 
cattle on a thousand hills. He can pay for everything. If we're not bringing to God what he has purposed in our hearts. Where do you need to honor God? If we want to see the movement of God grow and thrive, less smoke and mirrors, more honor, not just from the pastor, not just from the elders, but from his people. I think that's where the spirit works, where ministry thrives and where churches grow. Let's pray. Uh, Again, God, I'm grateful for your word. Uh, It was given to Malachi and through Malachi. And God, we're here because so many of us, we do believe in your name, we believe in your power, and God, we do. the hardness of our heart and dark recesses of our mind, God, we acknowledge your greatness. But God, we confess, we think that there might be some similarity between your disgruntled heart with your priests and with us. And so God, we confess our failures before you. We do lack contentment in what we have But God, perhaps there's some brokenness in what we've done that's contributed to that. God, we confess to you that we blame you for our struggles. We blame culture for our brokenness. And we don't recognize our own greed and our own failure. God, we confess to you that we whine and complain about the ministries you've given us. without recognizing the opportunity and the blessing that we have been given. God, you have chosen us. You've hand-selected us. You have created us from the very beginning that we might grow and thrive and be a reflection of your glory in the position you've placed us. God, give us power. Give us humility. God, give us contentment with where you have us. God, help us to thrive in our marriages not complain about them. Help us to thrive and and enjoy the blessing of parenting and grandparenting. God, give us strength and energy we need, God, that we might be able to pursue it with passion. And God, we ask that you do restore the joy of our salvation. God, remind us as we approach worship of you and on Sundays and Mondays through Saturdays. Remind us of your greatness. God, give us eyes to see you as we ought to. God, we do pray for mercy, not just for our ministry, but for your ministries around the world. God, do a work in our hearts. Don't remove our mantle of ministry for your glory. So, God, restore us, renew us, redeem us, transform us. God, that we might be a a beacon, a 
reflection of your glory until the glorious time of your return. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.